one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten from someone is that you should be jealous of your equity. And there are small cap managers out there who have come public without selling any shares into the public markets. I'm Chris Hill, and that's Bill Mann, Director of Small Cap Research at The Motley Fool. Ricky Mulvey caught up with him for part two of their series on small cap investing. They talk about how to discover new opportunities among small cap stocks and some key metrics that can tell you a lot about a company's future. Last week, we laid out a framework for small cap investing. This week, we're diving a little deeper. Joining us again is Bill Mann. He accepted the calendar invite, and he's also the small cap investing director at The Motley Fool. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for uh, letting people know that my presence on this show is just due to my availability. That is correct. You know, I think there's you can't have one without the other. (laughs) First, I want to start off with with some framing questions, a little bit different than last time. We talked about the benefits kind of of holding on to small caps for, for a long period of time, but it's also like investing is kind of a game. So if small cap investing is a game, then who is this game for? When you think about small cap investing, you're talking about companies that, generally speaking, have less available information, they are less liquid, and frankly, a lot of people just haven't really heard of these companies. Which, which means that you know, your, your, your ability just to, to, to come across them is somewhat reduced. You need to be willing to be an active participant in the markets uh, in order to be a small cap investor, in order to do it well. Now, by active participant in the market, I don't mean that you need to be a trader. What I mean is that you need to be willing to do the work to learn about companies that are going to have a lower level of information uh, about them than you might be used to with some of the larger companies. Then on the flip side of that, who is, you know, who are the types of investors, the types of folks you would recommend? You know, turn off the podcast, go home, stay away from the small cap game. Well, I mean. It, One of the things that we talked about last week that is true on an individual level is that small caps tend to be much more volatile uh, than, than, than larger cap companies. And that has to do with a lack of information, a lower market cap. Uh, and simply a little more obscurity and a little less liquidity. I happen to think that small cap investing is one of the areas where individual investors have an absolute advantage over institutional investors. It is one of the areas in which if you are willing to do your homework, you are able to get into companies both earlier, and in some cases, ones that in institutions cannot buy. I think it's worth, like, we, we, I know we mentioned that last week, but I think it's like kind of worth diving into that idea a little bit deeper. If you're, you know, a Charles Schwab, a TD Ameritrade, if you're a major mutual fund company, like you, it, it straight up isn't worth your time to look at the small cap companies because often you're investing more money than the market caps of some of these companies. 
That's exactly it. And to be a diversified mutual fund in the United States, you cannot put more than 5% of your money into any one company. So you immediately start to think about just the mechanics of a company, of a mutual fund that's got several billion dollars in assets under management. What good is it to them to go and find a $100 million company if they are limited by how much of the company that they can buy, also how much of the the fund they can commit to that company. So there are all sorts of limitations that really make it so it's not worth their while to uh, to 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 play in this pool, which is why it's great for us as individual investors. I mean, you know, people get excited about IPOs because of the pops and things like that. That's not really truly where the advantage is for 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 investors. The advantage for individual investors is investing in places where institutions cannot go. Well, and I, I think there is a couple exceptions. Like you can buy, there are small cap index funds like VB, the Vanguard small cap fund sure. is a very popular ETF with very low expense fees. I guess the only I shouldn't say issue, but the cost of that is it's literally it's thousands of companies within that one ETF, which in itself is an advantage, you have the diversification. But this is to your earlier point: like, if you do the homework, there are drastic differences in the qualities of these companies. I think that's I think that's absolutely right, and research has actually borne this out. There are a much higher prevalence of of companies that that fail or underperform within with within small caps. The other reason why I think that small cap investing, from an institutional standpoint, is is a little bit. Uh, is not necessarily the way that you want to go, is that the definition of small caps at the institutional level is fixed. So, like, for example, a company like Activision, which is now a massive company, when it first came public, uh, it was a small cap company. But at some point, if it is a successful small cap company, it moves into the mid cap space and it moves into the large cap space. So you can't continue to hold it as an institution, which we as individual investors can. I mean, very famously here at The Motley Fool, David Gardner did that with Amazon, having held it since 1998 when it actually was a small cap. So we do have that advantage. Since these are less talked about, less followed how do you look for interesting small caps i mean ricky this is this is going to sound a little uh, diminutive but just open your eyes right the the fact that companies aren't talked about that much means that one of the things that you can do is you can just start to pay attention whenever you you know when, whenever you go to the store and you choose one product over another there's a there's there's a, a point in time where you can say well who makes this or when you hear someone talking about being excited that a you know that a chain is coming to your area or you when you hear your kids talking about a website that they use all of these things they don't feel like research but particularly in the small cap realm they are you know and so most of the companies that i own that i bought when were small caps really came from some form of personal experience and you know this goes back a long ways this it's perhaps you know maybe the most famous story uh, of a uh, of someone doing this was Peter Lynch who was the longtime portfolio manager for Fidelity Magellan went to go have lunch one day and he noticed a line going out the door at Taco Bell 
And so he went back, and this is this was before Taco Bell became part of Pepsi and then part of Yum. And Taco Bell had its own ticker. And with not that much more research, he bought part of it. And that turned out fantastically well for them. So the great news with small cap companies is that if you see something small that's well run, that's public, that's really a big part of your research. So in many cases, though, you're looking for younger companies. And within the past couple of years, a lot of the younger companies have uh, spacked or IPO'd at extraordinarily high levels. Now they're they're down. So I guess there's there's two parts of this question, or I guess there's one part of this question. Market timing tends to be a losing game, but it seems like now might be a richer environment to look for small caps now that a lot of those valuations have been brought back down to earth. You know, I like the way that you put it that way. And again, because small caps are actually defined by the market as by the size of market cap, there were a lot of companies that were actually very small companies that had mid cap and even large cap valuations and have now come way back down to earth. You know, like for example, there is a uh, there's a Korean company that came public in 2021 called Coupon and it is a combination of Amazon and eBay and you know it's a wonderfully run company. It's now much lower in price and so it therefore it is a market cap. So I mean it is a small cap. So in some ways there is a level of risk that comes with smaller companies with higher share prices or higher valuations when they come back to earth you, you get to see that risk sort of turned on its head where the expectations that are being put into these companies now are much much lower and ricky they're, they're really the same companies i mean obviously the environment has changed from 2020 and 2021 and let's hope we never go back to that again but at the same time these companies are not that far away from that same part of their development curve as they were then at 60 70 even 80 percent uh lower price than they were uh even a year ago last week we talked about uh some of the metrics to watch sales trading volume minimum share price all that good stuff let's look at some more one of which we didn't talk about on last week's show but i think is worth bringing up is insider holdings what are you watching for in terms of management uh owning the company that they're managing yeah, I think with small cap companies, you want uh, you want someone who is lashed to the mast of the company. And we talk a lot here at the Motley Fool about companies being founder led. That's a bit of a shortcut to saying that you want to you want a a CEO uh, who is absolutely positively dedicated to making sure that this company succeeds. And one way that you can see that their uh, interests are aligned with yours as shareholders uh, is straight insider ownership. What percentage company does the insider own? I mean, this gets to be somewhat absurd with larger cap companies because you're talking about companies that are billions and billions of dollars. But in the smaller cap companies, if you see a company that is valued at a billion dollars and the founder owns less than a million dollars in shares, you know that this founder has uh, has in some ways 
traded away whatever interest he or she has in the business for some sort of upfront payment. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that this isn't a talented founder. This isn't a talented CEO, but it is a way that you can determine whether they are going to be really, really motivated to see that share price go up over time. They're, they're not exactly playing in a contract year. They're not playing in a contract year. That's right. When you own when you own ten percent of the comp uh, of the company, every day is a contract year. Um, I think it's also worth talking about how these companies manage share count a little bit. Younger companies have more opportunity to widen them. Uh, is getting diluted out of a younger company that uh, is that something you watch? Is how they manage that share dilution? Um, like we had we had a conversation earlier before recording about rent the runway a little bit. Right, right, and rent the runway. I believe that their share count has about went up about six times between uh, last year and this year. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary amount. Now, that in and of itself is not one hundred percent concerning because they did go public, and when a company goes public, they are in fact selling shares to the public. But it is a tremendous amount of dilution, and it does tell you in some ways that the in insiders are more interested in selling than they are making sure that they re retain as much uh, as much equity as possible. I mean, I, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten from someone is that you should be jealous of your equity. And there are small cap managers out there who have come public without selling any shares into the public markets. It's all secondary and, you know, and, and pre pre-public shareholders who want to sell and and again it's not a sure thing and i and, and that a company that you see a big share dilution is a bad company and a company that that doesn't dilute shares is a good company but it's it's a pretty good way to vote when you're looking at profitability cash flow from operations free cash flow is that something that you're keeping a close eye on or are you giving a lot of these companies the benefit of the doubt hey these are younger they might need some time to to reach profitability it really depends. Yeah, for younger companies, you absolutely do. You have to keep in mind when when companies go bankrupt, and in smaller caps, they really do actually go bankrupt more often uh, than than large caps do. You know, I think that that you know the reasons why probably make sense. You know, they are much more on a razor's edge. It's not a lack of profits that causes a company to go bankrupt. It's a lack of cash. And so you really do see situations where you you know where 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 companies aren't showing much profitability but at the same time they are either generating cash flows or they're not burning that much. Now, with a younger company, that's something that I'm pretty comfortable with just so you can see the path, even though you have to keep uh, in the back of your mind uh, the knowledge that you are doing something that is a little bit higher risk anytime that you own a company that is not currently profitable. But yeah, cash is king. And so, what you need to do with smaller cap companies that are not generating pr profits or are not generating free cash flow is test the, th the thesis. Make sure that you understand what the path is. You know, are they in a, in a heavy development stage and keep yourself honest if you see a new excuse for why they're not 
free cash flow positive or they're no closer to profitability, that's a company that you probably want to get out of pretty. Off the cash flow statement, off the balance sheet, are there any like metrics or, or data points that you like to look at as a small cap investor? You know, one of the things that I think is really important with small cap uh, with, with small cap companies, and this this might this might sound funny, but I really want to see a rising number of customers. And so you have small cap companies, and sometimes they will have uh, they'll they'll have customers where you see the the, the biggest customer is sixty percent of their revenues, and that means that the, this company is in some ways captive or hostile to that big company. So, if you see a company with a rapidly growing number of customers, and this is something that they all disclose in their 10Ks, uh, if you know where to look for it, you know, there's a management discussion of, of, of the business, and they will describe how many and what types of customers they have. So, one thing I love to see is a breadth and growing number of customers for these small cap companies. All right, we've done the academic portion. Let's look at some real live companies. Get get some real live fish Let's on get the to line. It. Last week we talked about how you know every company has good dysfunction. It's it's the question you have as an investor is is what do you look past and then what what sort of puts up a red flag. So let's 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 go off that point. Are there companies that you see with some good dysfunctions and then are are there any dysfunctions that you're happy to watch on the sidelines? You know, one company that I really do admire. Uh, is Wingstop. The ticker is, as you might guess, W-I-N-G. Uh, it is a franchiser of the Wingstop brand. It sells chicken wings and boneless wings and all sorts of de- deliciousness in, in uh, about 1,600 franchised restaurants all around the United States. Um, one of the things that I look for with restaurant companies in particular is is low food costs and low cost of production. And a very well-known CEO by the name of Salim Basul, who was uh, the CEO of Middleby, was a, a kitchen uh, supply company, talked about companies that were um, in, you know, in the restaurant space uh, that Treated their kitchen like a factory. Now that sounds terrible. I mean, you know, as 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 a uh, as a purchaser and as a customer, you don't want them to. You know, you don't want to think of your restaurants as being a factory. But what he means by that is where the steps are all standardized and it takes as much cost as possible out of the process. And Wingstop, as a small cap company, is one of the best in the business. Had a little bit of a pivot. Didn't they do the thigh stop during when the during the chicken wing wing? shortage? They did. That's right. That's one of the areas of dysfunction. I mean, so obviously, if you were to talk about the risks to Wingstop, I mean, you've got the one, maybe the best one is that people will stop eating chicken wings, but I mean, come on. But chicken wings by themselves are a single singular supply risk that they have. And wings, like a lot of other things this last year, the price went parabolic. And so, yeah, they they shifted, I think, in a very, very funny, uh, clever way. And, and people embraced and it. Speaking of restaurants, uh, there's one that I've been happy to watch on the sidelines. And that has been uh, Red Robin where their dysfunctions as a company seems a little bit more difficult to um, surmount. It's so disappointing, isn't it? 
I mean, they've got a huge number of franchises. They sell wine milkshakes. How yes. is it possible that this hasn't worked? They have. So, I, I, looking through some of their financials, they've had about this is last year, not this year, one point two billion in sales, and a price to sales ratio of zero point two two, which is that of a grocery store, not not a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason that. Well, I, I think there's questions for me about essentially how are you not profitable selling hamburgers to Americans at a, ch at a beloved chain? And then number two for me has been management, particularly the way that they've been handling the balance sheet. As of 2021, Red Robin had 23 million in net cash, 51 million in short-term debt, and 620 million dollars in long-term debt. Right now, latest numbers, they have of a market cap of about 130 million. Yeah, it's really incredible, isn't it? Now, they've got about 600 restaurants, 500 of which they own, and then they have about another, another uh, 100 of them that are, that are franchised. And you can't understand why a company that has franchises would have, would have cash dynamics like that. Now, this is a company that has been pretty good at selling, but has been absolutely positively lousy over time at managing its costs. And it's it's very different from something like Wingstop, where it's easy to say, okay, their costs are down now, are higher now because of one input or two or three inputs. This is a case of a company that has never gotten its cost structure under control. And I don't care how many hamburgers you sell. The point of a company is not to sell as many hamburgers as possible. It's not to sell as many wine milkshakes as possible. It's to make money. And they have not figured out how to do it. And their stock is down 70% since 2015. You're not talking about a company that has seen its stock drop sharply over the last year. That is, that is seven years worth of the market telling the company that it needs to change its ways. CEO Paul Murphy is is retiring, and he is uh, just 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 as an observer. I do enjoy watching how he handles conference calls. In the latest one, this is just how he opened the presentation to investors. Quote: "Is the headlines have become increasingly negative as it relates to consumer confidence, general inflation, and the likelihood of a recession. Casual dine-in traffic has been trending downward. Still, when we evaluate our sales and traffic trends relative to our peers in the same markets, we are outperforming the casual dine-in segment." End quote. That to me is an absolute heater, telling investors like. All right. To start this off, listen, folks. the The economy is bad. It is really bad. I don't out know there. if you. I don't know if you've heard. I know I'm going to get asked about this. The economy. I feel bad. bad beating up on Red Robin. I like the restaurant. I like going there, and I want it to be profitable. And that's that's why I follow it. But it's just been it's been difficult. Let's speak a little bit more positively. We. I don't need to keep keep beating up on hamburgers, but. One thing you brought up in the last show was a way to frame companies as an investor. As you say. If this company disappeared, it would be extremely painful to its customers. This isn't exciting at all. Prepare yourself. We're about to talk about workers' compensation insurance. I'm buckled in. So we're talking about a company called Employers Holdings Incorporated. The ticker is EIG. It's based in Reno, and it provides insurance to companies specifically for workers' compensation, which is an area for companies that is an enormous 
almost open-ended risk if their insurers do not handle it proper, properly. Employers holdings, this is essentially their only line of business, and they are really, really good at it. And, you know, we like not to think much about insurance, but it really bears remembering how many things would cease to happen in this company, in this country, excuse me, if companies were unable to, to have insurance that protected them against specific types of claims and maybe at the top of the list is workers compensation bill it is incredibly difficult for me to tell if you're pausing for comedic timing or if your screen is simply frozen <laughs> and, and these are the joys maybe of both recording. how about both it could be sure both? why not last thing one quality we uh talked about in last week's episode is hey it's okay to look at products that customers just really seem to like going back to the the Peter Lynch idea. So when you think of smaller companies with the products that that customers really seem to like, that's the fill in the blank. What what do you think of? Well, so there's a there there's a company uh, that's based actually in the UK, but almost all of its business is is here in the United States. About eighty percent of it called Naked Wines, and Naked Wines uh, sends you're going to like this. They'll they'll send wine to your door on a subscription basis, and their customers love it, and the and 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 the vineyards love it because the vineyards uh, get to lock in an entire vintage of wine, and it's pre-sold. Old to vintage to to naked wines, who then sells it out to their customers. So an absolutely wonderful model. It's a really small company, and you know, obviously, as we have come out from the pandemic, people are leaving their houses again. Maybe we you know we don't need as much wine mailed to our house as we did in late 2020. But it's a co- it's a company that has a tremendous amount of what's called customer retention, which means that very few of people who actually try naked wines end up leaving the supply it. side that that seems kind of nice that you don't have to deal with the entire complex distribution process of all the wine shops that seem to be independently owned multiple wine distributors like it's it's definitely solving a pro like i i, I clearly see the problem that it's solving yeah and also vineyards basically all of their investment is up front and so there's this like strange pressure because they know the optimal day to pick their grapes i mean these are all these are basically very very high end chemistry experiments but they also know that if they pick them oh just a few days sooner they start to get their cash sooner so if their cash is fronted to them they can actually optimize on the quality of the grapes the end quality of the wine so from beginning to end it is a better process for really everyone involved. The other thing is companies don't just start out as small caps. They can also go back to being small caps. In uh, uh, this past, let's call it bearish market, you've seen a lot of companies that went to the mid-cap land and then turned out to be small caps. Like, Sure, there's there's lemonade, there's upstart, but also if you look in the, the we'll call it the dredges of the S&P 500, there's a flooring manufacturer called Mohawk Industries. You got your Sin Stocks, Penn Gaming, Wynn Resorts, and you also got an IT outfit called DXC technology. So let's let's call that let's call some of these companies that mid-cap graveyard. And it doesn't have to be from an investability perspective, but are there any of these companies that went to mid-cap land and came back that are interesting to you? 
Well, we always we already talked about Coupang earlier, but Penn National, Penn Entertainment is absolutely one of those. And yes, it is a sin stock. You know, they've got they've got casinos in. 20 states, 44 properties, uh, and they are a management company of casinos. And you know, I don't know about uh, I, I don't know about you, Ricky, but I really do believe that 20, 30, even 50 years from now, uh, we Americans will still gamble. Yes, I'm pretty confident in that. It's like this is the thing I struggle with, which is like I want to invest. It's invest in the best vision of your the future. But also, I think part of the future might look a little bit like that movie Idiocracy. And if I can sit on my couch and gamble on the uh, baseball game, UFC fight, NFL game that's on TV, like, am I going to deny that that makes the game somewhat more exciting? Yeah, my best vision of the future is not in a casino outside of St. Louis on a Thursday night. It just that, isn't. I think that's but, pretty fair. Yeah, it, <laughs> But idiocracy is exactly right. And we should, we should embrace the fact that we as human beings do like to have fun and we do like, we like us a good gamble. We, we really do. There's absolutely positively nothing wrong with that. And Penn National is a company that's been incredibly intelligent about how they go about deploying uh, places for, for people to do this all around the United States of America. We're moving to the wrap up. As we've as we're completing these two episodes on small cap investing, is there anything you think that we didn't talk about for the small cap curious that that you would want to make make sure they know before they enter this investing space? The best thing that you can do with any small cap is go and get their annual report and read the letter to shareholders, which will, generally speaking, be written by the, the CEO or the chairman, whoever the most important person at the company is. And in those words, you can get a sense of what this, uh, what this company is about and what this leader is about. Because these companies are so they are so specifically dependent upon good management. You really want to know what this management is. And so, one thing that I like to do actually is just go onto YouTube and see if there's an, an, an interview with the person who is, is running the company. And in almost all situations, you'll be able to find something and you will get a sense of whether this is a person that you would like to put your money with or if this is a person who you would like to wish good luck. It's not so fun to gamble outside of St. Louis on a Thursday night, but it is a lot of fun to read a company's annual report and its management discussion for shareholders. Bill Mann, thanks for being a part of this series. Thanks, thanks for guiding us through the small cap investing landscape. Hey, thanks so much, Ricky. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.